God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. However, let each one of you... This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, would you use these words so that we might all see you better as we follow you as you love us and as this great mystery is made clear in marriage might it be clear in this sermon it's in your son's name we pray amen well impassibility you might think that's when you're stuck behind an 18 wheeler on a rural texas highway however It's a theological term in the discussion of whether God has emotions or not. Some say God is impassable. God does not have emotions. And there was once a man who was convinced that God did not have emotions. And so when he came to propose to his girlfriend, he said to her, as a good impassibilist, I have decided to adopt a position of love towards you. Will you marry me? Well, to this rather lame proposal, she emotionally said, no. And after a few months and many conversations, he again came to her and just said, I love you. Will you marry me? And she then said, yes. Now that man was not me, nor was the woman Sarah. But I bring this story up to show that in our lives, we can confess certain things. But what we truly believe about God always plays out in how we act. This man believed God doesn't have emotions. And so when he wanted to propose, he needed to act in that way. A very stoic demonstration of his so-called love. And it's important to remember this. For the passage in front of us is one that flows from who God is, how he's made the world, and how we're to respond to him. It's based on the idea that God has told us how we are to live and how we are to order ourselves. When Sarah's grandfather passed away, we received many tools. Many of them I'd seen before, but some of them I would pick up, and I'd flip over, and I'd move the various parts, and I thought, I have no idea what this thing is for. And unless someone came and told me, oh, well, this does this, and this is why this mechanism does this, I wouldn't know or if I didn't find instructions. Well, in life, We don't have to go around guessing, well, what is marriage for? How do we parent? What do we do? God has instructed us in his word so that we can know how to order all these things. Sadly, though, many people don't understand God's word. 
Some people don't apply it. Some don't even consider what God has to say. And then others just say, well, I don't agree with that. And this morning we come to a passage in which the Bible teaches that God has made men and women equal, but he's given them different roles in the marriage. However, let me give you some quotes from Christians and non-Christians about what they think these teachings uh, create. Again, this is Christians and non-Christians. One person says, at its core, this theology is one of inequality and hierarchy, and inequality breeds abuse. Another says, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Third, and lastly, this theology is a breeding ground for abusive marriages. The problem is not just an occasional rotten apple, but a rotten theological tree. So unless you missed it, they are claiming that to teach what this passage says is going to inevitably lead to abuse. Even if those claims aren't held to be true, John Stott words ring true. The very notion of submission to authority is out of fashion today. It is totally at odds with contemporary attitudes of tolerance and freedom. Almost nothing is calculated to arouse more angry protest than it. And he wrote that in 1979. And things have not changed for the better. So what does the Bible say about authority? Is what we're going to say going to lead to abuse? And what does this even look like? So this morning we're going to look at three things. If you have a bulletin, you can see this in the back, on the back. First, the context, goodness, and joy of biblical submission. Then, specifically, the object, extent, and nature of a wife's submission. And then the reasons for this relationship. The middle section will by far be the longest, and the last will be more like some concluding remarks. But first, the context, goodness, and joy of biblical submission. In our culture, when we hear the word submission, we automatically draw negative connotations. We think of what's done in wrestling, where one person throws the other down and holds them against their will until they yell, uncle, or submit. It's someone being forced against their will. However, submission in other contexts is just fine. For example, you may need to submit a proposal. Or if you're going to apply to a university, you have to submit your application. So the word submit is not necessarily good or bad. It's how it's being used and why it's being used. And as we look at the biblical idea in context, we see the idea of submission is supposed to be a joyful self-giving to another person. It's not a taking and forcing against another's will, but rather a humble sacrificial giving for another. We see that by remembering the context of Ephesians. For while your Bible, like mine, might have a section break right before verse 22 that says, Wives and husbands, this is really flowing from verse 21. Well, what's going on in verse 21? Well, verse 21 is flowing all the way back from verse 18 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is the debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul gave several ways we're filled with the Spirit. And the last one is, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, if we want to be filled by the Spirit of God, then we don't walk around feeling superior to other Christians. We won't think that they should always hear, heed our desires and requests. 
No, we'll humbly consider others more important than ourselves and we'll submit to their desires and want to serve them. Thus, on one hand, every Christian, male or female, child or parent, boss or worker, is to submit to other Christians. And know what Paul does next. For then, right after that, and flowing from that, in chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, he gives three specific relationships in which submission to one another works out. Thus, beginning in verse 22, we see wives and husbands, or if you have to flip, or if you look at the beginning of chapter 6, it'll talk about children obey your parents in the Lord, and then it'll talk about parents. And then it'll give the third section, chapter 6, verse 5, slaves obey, and then it'll talk about masters. All of these are working out what does it look like to uniquely submit to one another, not just the generic submit to one another. You know, God made a wonderful world in which every single person is under authority. You may remember when Jesus was before Pilate, Jesus told him, you would have a no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when it's talking about the same idea of husbands and wives, it says, the head of every man is Christ. Every single person is under authority. And God intended authority to be a good thing. Yes, sadly, due to sin, people use their authority and abuse it in sinful ways. Yet God's intention was that those in authority and those under authority would be blessed that they would seek the good of the other in their part of the relationship. And that's why in these verses, Paul gives such radical commands to both parts of the relationship. You know, if you read this passage, most people in our culture would be offended by what's said to the wife, to the children, or the slaves. That's oppressive. But if you went back to Paul's day, the shocking nature would not be any of that. The shocking nature would be, husbands have obligations? Parents owe something to their children? Masters owe something to their slaves? They wouldn't believe any of that. The husband has to love his wife. He has to be willing to die for her. Fathers need to not provoke their children. Masters need to be fair and not be harsh towards their servants or slaves. So here we're being shown that this command to wives begins with all Christians being called to live as spirit-filled people. And then... How does that flush out in various ways? Yet, it's important to recognize both because that mutual submission does not negate the other role-based dynamics and structures that God has given us for our good. Sometimes people will take this, well, look, verse 21 is saying submit to one another, so it clearly doesn't mean anything for wives and husbands. It's just mutual. Except, if we took that line of thought, then we would have to be consistent and say, well, there's no authority with parents or children. Or there's no authority in the church or no authority in government. Yet we still know that parents and children, though equal in worth before God's eyes, that God has given parents authority. Or we know that though you don't need to come to Keith or I for us to mediate before God for you, God has still said in Hebrews 13:7, Obey your church leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Thus, there's this context here of these commands, and there's a goodness to God's various structures of authority in life so that we can be guided, served, and led. And we even see that 
when we have authority over us, we should submit to them joyfully. I say that because if you turn, you don't need to turn there, but if you turn, you could read Luke 2.51 that talks about how Jesus was submissive to his parents. Or John 12.49, 1 Corinthians 15.28, tell us how Jesus submits to the Father. Now that's important to remember because Jesus was in no way inferior to Mary and Joseph. We know for all times the Son and the Holy Spirit are not inferior to God the Father. And so to joyfully submit to someone's authority is not to say they are more worth than I am. It's that God has given this unique relationship and this is how I honor God in it. And notice that what God calls for is not subjugation, putting someone under your tyrannical rule. That's the person in charge forcing and domineering their leadership. Rather, the call is for the person to submit voluntarily to the person over them. You know, in some sense, you could say that Jesus submitted to all Christians because what did he do? He submitted his life so that we might have life. And how was that described? Hebrews 12 tells us he did it for the joy that was set before him. Thus, when the Bible uses the word submission, it's not talking about being servile, being a slave, or being forced to do something against your will. Rather, the biblical idea of submission is the joyful putting myself under the authority of the one God has placed over me for my good and my obedience to him and his glory. So with that context in mind, let's look specifically what's being instructed here in chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Our second point, the object, nature, and extent of a wife's submission. First, notice the object of the submission is to your own husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Thus, this is not a call for women to submit to men. This is not saying that what a woman must do whatever a man says, but rather that there's a unique, unique relationship in marriage. Second, notice that the nature of this is for a wife to do this, as verse 22 says, as to the Lord. Or as verse 24 reads, as the church submits to Christ. So let's think about that. How should a believer respond to God's sacrificial love? Is every person up to their own desires? Well, you know, you respond to God this way, but I really connect with God this way. So you connect with God how you want, but I'll connect to God how I want. Well, no, Scripture has given us a clear way that we are to respond to Him. Jesus told us if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. And God made clear that He wants this joyful heart that responds in submission to Him. Thus, Jesus warned of the false religion of the Pharisees in which he said, This people honors me with their lips, while their heart is far from me. In like manner, a wife or a child or an employee could do whatever the person over them says externally, but internally despise and loathe the person over them. God wants a joyful self-giving from his church, from his bride. That's why in 1 John 5, 4, it says, When we love God... His commands are not burdensome. You know, sadly, many people respond to God in a way that was depicted in a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. If you've never read Calvin Hobbes, he's a six-year-old little boy, and he has a little stuffed tiger that, named Hobbes that he imagined comes to life. Well, Christmas is coming near, and Calvin nervously is explaining to Hobbes, you know, Santa 
might not understand that there's certain things a good kid could do that might look bad in a certain light if one didn't consider all the mitigating circumstances, Calvin says. So Calvin sits there and explains that he's a really good person, but then he stops mid-sentence. For there his nemesis, Susie Durkins, is standing and snowballs are all around his feet. And he starts getting excited about all that he can do with hitting Susie with a snowball until Hobbes paused and says, weren't you just defending your goodness? And they're going back and forth arguing and it gets so heated that Susie hears and Susie hits Calvin with a snowball. And what does Calvin do? <laughs> Wonderful! She's hit me. Now I get to her, hit her. Sweet revenge. Sweet justice. And Hobbes replies, or you could prove to Santa how good you are and the comic ends with Calvin screaming to the sky, I don't want to be this good. You know, he doesn't want to do good to Susie. He only wants to get Christmas presents. It's a burden to be loving and kind. And sadly, that's the way many times we are with God. We don't really want to do what he says, but we want him to be good to us. We don't want to go to hell, so, all right, I got to love this person. All right, you tell me to give be sacrificial. Okay, you tell me to be humble, but there's no joy in it. God wants his bride to respond not with a burden to his commands, but to his with a joyful response. And so, if a wife is to submit as the as the church submits to Christ, well then that is the implication. And that leads to the third aspect of this. To what extent should wives submit? Verse 24 tells us, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Not only in those areas in which you think he has good insight, not only in those areas in which you agree with him, but rather in everything. Now we need to pause here, because there's at least five very serious misunderstandings about that. And after we kind of clear those up, I want to say what this says positively. First, we've already hinted at this, Let's state the most obvious. Nowhere in this passage or all of Scripture is the husband to, commanded to make his wife submit. Now, tragically, I could tell of Christian men, even Christian leaders, that have twisted this in other Scriptures and quoted this as they physically and verbally, verbally, that's not even a word, verbally, assault their wife as I verbally assault the English language. As we began, I noted that there are people who think just to teach this is going to cause abuse. And sadly, if you look at statistics, the highest rates of abuse in the United States come from Protestant evangelical Christian men. They use and abuse these verses to abuse their wife. Thus, we have to admit there is a grain of truth when they say those things. However, if you dig deeper into the statistics... There's a major difference between Christians who take the name a Christian and Christians who actually seek to live it out. As the studies say, Christians who regularly attend church. If you split it up in that regard, then the least likely group to abuse their wife of all of the United States is men who actively go to evangelical churches. If you look at the group who is the worst to abuse their wives, it's the men who say, I'm a Christian, but never go to church. And that's why we should be faithful as a church to say, look, just saying you're a Christian doesn't matter. You need to live it out. 
not just in church attendance, but here and at home in all places. Because there's not just verses 22 through 24. Next week we'll look, there's verses 25 and following. But it does bear repeating because when people say, well, look, this is going to lead to abuse. On one hand, we need to say, yes, there are people who abuse God's word. But if you look at the people who are trying to live this out, they are the least likely to do this, to abuse their spouse. Second, we should say this is not stated, these ideas, because a wife or women are inferior. Genesis 1 declares men and women are made in God's image, not just the male king. You know, in their culture, when the Bible was written, women were not allowed to be eyewitnesses in court. But Jesus chose for his primary eyewitnesses to his resurrection to be women. 1 Peter 3, 7, which is talking about this, adds, and you are co-heirs with Christ. The husband doesn't have more spiritual blessing than the wife, and the wife doesn't. We are co-heirs. We are going to inherit the same blessings. 1 Corinthians 7 is radical in the way that it says men and women are to care for and serve the other in marital intimacy. Now that was very radical because consider this quote from a very leading man in their culture. He said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. The wife was nothing more than an object when you want a child and to take care of your house. But the Bible comes and says, no, no, no. The husband should care just as much for his wife as the wife should for him. It's not just those people. The philosopher Aristotle and the Jewish historian Josephus both said that women were in all respects inferior to men. You may know at that time there was a Jewish prayer in which they thanked God that they were not a Gentile nor that they were a woman. You know, if you went back to the first century and you said, who are the feminists? Everyone would point to the Bible-believing Christians. They would go, those people are the ones championing women's rights. In other words, God's call for authority structures is not due to the superiority of the leader. You know, sometimes citizens are smarter than their governing authorities. Sometimes, maybe often, church members may have more insight than their pastor on an issue. In almost every marriage, there's going to be areas in which the wife is superior, and a wise husband, rather than feeling attacked or insecure, will praise that. You know, if he's horrible with numbers, let her do the checkbook. If he hates to mow, and somehow she loves to mow, and she hates to cook, and he loves to cook, well then, let her mow and him cook. We don't need to follow culturally given jobs or things that are not in the Bible. If there are ways in which she's superior, then honor those. You see, the thing is, he's not head because he's superior, but because God has given him that role. That leads to the third misunderstanding, is that is to think that a husband's leadership means he must make all the decisions alone. You know, a wise leader gets the advice of those around him. They rejoice when someone points out, hey, did you consider this? And they go, you know, I didn't, and I'm going to make a better decision now that I have the extra information. Relatedly, wise leadership leaves many of the implementations to those making the decisions. I'm sure none of us likes to be micromanaged, having the person come and tell us all the little things about how we need to do it. Let them run with it. You know, again, 
this can be abused. John Piper, he a, was a pastor, now a Christian leader, talks of counseling a man who thought these verses mean that anytime his wife wanted to go from one room in the house to another, she needed his permission. You know, people mute, abuse these ideas to such an extent that it's like, where did you even get that? This is not about being a tyrant. This is not about someone needing to leave their brain at their wedding altar. This is about loving leadership and joyful submission as it's seen in Christ and his bride. Fourth, submission does not mean following or allowing a husband to continue in sin. Flip back one chapter, Ephesians 4.11 told us, sorry, Ephesians 5.11, same chapter. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That verse applies in all contexts. If your husband is encouraging you to sin, then you should say, as Peter did in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. If your husband is sinning, then gently, humbly, at the right time, talk to him about it. Fifth, and the last misunderstanding, and then we'll look at what this means positively, submission does not mean you have to follow your husband to the destruction of yourself or your family. I choose the word destruction purposefully because sometimes following a leader does mean going along with a choice that is not as enjoyable. Perhaps you'd like to go out to eat more, but he says we can't afford it. Well, you might not enjoy that, but you need to follow his leadership. Yet again, I bring this up because these teachings have been so distorted that some Christians say the only recourse a woman has is to go back home and take more abuse because that's what it means to submit they say. However, consider a biblical example of the opposite. You may be familiar with the story, 1 Samuel 25. David sends for food from Nabal. And Nabal responds back saying, basically, David, you're a rebel. I'm not helping you. And David, in his anger and sense of vengeance, is going to go and kill Nabal. Nabal's wife, though, Abigail, finds out about it. She goes and she intervenes. And there she says, Many things, but one of the things she says to David is this. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Let, my, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. You know, Abigail's actions and her words cause David to turn away from his sinful vengeance and then to praise God and her. Notice that Abigail's actions went to the exact opposite of what her husband wanted but she wasn't just trying to be rebellious she was saving his life and the life of others and she's not condemned for this but she is praised or consider king david the apostle paul when their governing authorities wanted to put them to death what did they do they fled submitting to your authorities doesn't mean you have to sit there and let them put you to death or abuse you Likewise, if a husband's actions is leading to the destruction of the wife or children, the wife has the freedom to flee. So, there's all these things that doesn't mean, but it does mean something. So, what does it mean? Well, to understand it, remember what was read earlier, Genesis chapter 3. Let's turn there, Genesis chapter 3. We need to note a few things. So, Genesis 3 is when Adam and Eve sinned. And then after that, God comes and talks to them. And if you remember, the serpent first came and talked to Eve. And then, 
Look down at chapter 3, verse 16. As God is giving the punishments, he says, Genesis 3, 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now let me pause and just quickly say, having to have a child was not the curse. The curse is the pain. Likewise, what's said next is not the curse. It's the distortion of it. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The curse is not that there's leadership. The curse is that there is now a battle for leadership. When it says your desire will be for your husband, it doesn't mean that she's going to feel cozy and romantic and want to snuggle up next to him. Look over one chapter at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. We'll start at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That word desire is the exact same word. Sin is not wanting to get cozy and snuggle with Cain. Sin is wanting to overtake Cain, to rule over Cain. So that's what's being said in Genesis 3.16. Due to sin, the wife now does not want to joyfully submit. She now wants to rule over. And when it says he shall rule over you, it's not him having the servant leadership that we'll see next week of husbands. It's him domineering and using his leadership in a sinful way. So that now we know too well the so-called battle of the sexes. You know, every human heart doesn't like the idea of authorities over us. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want anyone to tell us differently. Yet, as we've said, God has placed authorities in our life for our good. And when we submit to them, we're sowing ultimately our submission to God in our life. You know, many will claim well, it's only a weak-willed woman with a low self-esteem who would ever do this. Yet, it takes no character to desire to rule yourself. It takes the power of God and the greatest of character to submit to the authorities God has put in your life. Remember, submission is to give voluntarily. And sometimes the woman's desire is to rule the relationship is quite obvious. There's constant disagreement. There's constant argument. There's constantly, in public, disagreeing. She's what Proverbs 27.5 describes. Continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. You can hear that kitchen faucet. Drip, 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 drip. And it just about wants to drive you crazy. And some wives are like that. He says, let's go on a vacation. And she goes, well, where do you think the money's going to come from? A couple weeks later goes, you know, or sorry, a couple weeks later she goes, why do we always stay around the house? We never go anywhere. Like, well, what is it? Do you want me to spend some money and take us on a vacation? Or do you want to sit here? But no matter what he decides, somehow it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Constantly critiquing him. For other women, their desire to rule is less obvious. Some of y'all watched in Sunday School this summer the Shepherding a Child's Heart series, and you may remember Ted Tripp talking about counseling one couple, and the, honey, and the wife said, you know, in our marriage, Phil's the head of the house. Isn't that right, Phil? And Phil shook his head yes. <laughs> yeah, you can say all the right things, and I've known plenty of women who will say, he's the head of our home. But you watch their life, and you say... It sure seems like she's driving the bus. He's saying the right things. She's saying the right things. But if you say, well, why did you all do this? 
Well, she wanted that. Why are y'all doing this? She wanted that. And so there needs to be a joyful, honey, what do you think we should do? And in this battle for control, the wife should joyfully submit. But flip what we'll say here, because remember back in Ephesians how it wrapped up. It says all these teachings, and then at the end of chapter 5 it says, So husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husband. This week, the pawn shared with me a book by Emerson Egricks, and in there it had several interesting things about respect that I never considered before. One thing I never knew is, many of you probably know the song by Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You know, kind of a song in her time, but was a real champion of women's rights. But what's ironic is that song was first sung by a man about how he wants R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And not only that, they did a study once of men, and they asked them, if you had to choose A or B, A, you're left alone and unloved, or B, you feel inadequate and you feel disrespected, which would you choose? Well, 74% of the men said they'd prefer to be left alone and unloved. Now, that doesn't mean they want to be unloved, but what men desire is respect. And so, one of the best ways you can love and submit to your husband is respect him and give him the respect he should have. Now, you might say that he should have. Do you know what he's like when we're not at church? This guy never leads. He's good at running to the couch or the fridge, but he doesn't run to serve me. You know, it's like not three children. It's like four children in this house. Except when the Bible calls us to respect, it's never because of who they are in their character. It's who they are in their role. You know, there should be unconditional respect because God has given them that role. Now, this should be a challenge. You know, husbands, if your wife respected you, talked about you the way you talked about President Biden, would you feel respected? Or would you say, don't talk to me like that? Well, we're called to give respect to all governing authority. So the way we go, I don't agree with his decision, but you know what? He's president. I'm going to talk about him in a respectful way so your wife should be able to say about you. Because your wives, it's no great insight. You don't agree with everything your husband thinks. So wives, how can you build up your husband? What words can you give that positively affirm his leadership? As I was driving here this morning and a little bit yesterday, I keep rubbing on my thumb this little splinter. And somehow we're really good at noticing the one thing wrong and harping on it. You know, your husband might do 10 good things good, but that 11th, just like my thumb, you keep rubbing it over and over. But rather than focusing on the negative, what is something good that he is doing that you can give him thanks for? You know, everyone has good qualities about them. You know, some husbands might be quieter. Others might be social butterflies, though probably don't call them a social butterfly. Some husbands can fix anything. Other husbands, the wife hides the screwdriver. Some can make decisions quickly. Others sit there and they ponder forever. Well, praise and respect your husband, whichever one he is, and for the good that he does. And it's not just about words face-to-face -face when you're with your friends or you're talking to your family, or you're talking to your children, there should be a way that you can, again, not have to agree, but show respect. Not the, well, honey, you can do this, but don't tell dad. You know what he's like. The wife should be affirming him. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean the wife has to say every time, well, I think dad made the best decision. There's a way to talk that says, you know, I might have made this differently, but dad's in charge, and we're going to follow what he says, and we're going to do our best to do that joyfully. You consider the words of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. There it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Elizabeth George writes, Our respectful and pure conduct to our husband, whether he is a Christian or not, preaches a lovelier and more powerful sermon than our mouth ever could. As we conclude, we need to consider what are the reasons for this relationship? Why would God give this? And there's two main reasons. First, God determined from creation that since woman came from man, the man would lead. This is the argument if you go to 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Timothy 2. Sin did not create the structures of authority. Rather, as we instead, they corrupted God's design of authority. Now, I say that because if you're still in Genesis 3, notice who God comes to first. Genesis 3, verse 9. We'll start at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And then God has a conversation with Adam. But who is the one who took of the fruit first and ate it? Eve. Well, then why in the world is God talking to Adam? Well, because Adam was in charge. Adam, when he heard the devil start to twist the word of God, should have rebuked him and should have stopped him from twisting God's word. That's why God comes first to Adam, because Adam bears the moral responsibility for the family. Now, that doesn't mean Eve doesn't have any responsibility, because that God then gave Eve some curses as well. It simply means that even before sin, the husband bore a unique and primary responsibility to lead the family. Thus, as we come to the New Testament, leadership is not removed, even though there's now neither male nor female, but rather it's transformed to restored to the leadership that reflects Christ. In other words, what we read in the New Testament is not just Paul's misogyny, or it's not just, well, that's what they believed back then. Rather, these are roles tied into creation. And that really leads to the second reason God has these structures of authority, because as it says in Ephesians 5, this is a picture of Christ in the church. God's response to Adam and Eve's sin was not only to give them punishment, rather, even in the midst of that, God promised that a seed of the woman would crush the devil. In other words, God responded to their sin with his plan for Jesus to come as a human, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death and rise again for the punishment of sin. And though a husband will never be a savior like that, the husband is to reflect such saving love and daily acts and attitudes. And while a wife will never perfectly reflect the response of the church in love, she, by her submission and respect, is to show the church's delight in following Christ. So the question this morning really is, is it a drudgery? Is it a burden to obey God? 
As we said earlier, I hope you have joy in submitting to God, knowing He wants what's best for us. And one of the things that is for our good is aligning ourselves with the authorities God has given us. You know, I gave earlier some stats of abuse in marriage, saying that tragically, people who take the name of Christian but don't live it out are the worst. But those who live it out in their evangelical faith are the ones who are least likely to commit abuse. But it's not just the absence of abuse, though. For a study on marital, marital satisfaction showed that those who hold conservative gender values and regularly attend services have the highest quality marriages, the most satisfied one. If you delve even deeper, studies show that couples in their satisfaction in regards to intimacy, that highly religious couples express the highest satisfaction by far. Thus, while the mantra from our culture is, well, if you really follow that, your life's going to be over. I mean, the woman's just going to be miserable. The husband's just going to be a tyrant. Well, in fact, the exact opposite is shown. That to submit to God's design is to submit to what will lead to the best happiness. In fact, there's a woman, Bernice Martin, the University of London, that writes, Biblical Christianity has done far more than Western feminism to improve the lives of poor women around the globe. Thus, we've just scratched the surface of God's good plan for how a wife who calls Jesus Lord should joyfully respect and submit to her husband. The other side of that coin we'll look at next week. But when these two function together, it's a beautiful picture of God's love and the church's response. May we live that out. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your amazing love. Oh, what manner of love it is that we should be called children of God. And so, Lord, would we respond to you as delightful children, that we're not burdened by your commands, that we find them a delight. Lord, would we, whether we're wives or husbands or children or bosses or employees, may we seek to live out what you would do if we were in those roles, as we seek to be your hands and feet, a picture of you to this world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.